0: Hi to all our friends and family across the great city of Cape Town. My name is Rigby Wallace, and I'm privileged to serve on the leadership team of Common Ground across our great city. Before I get to my preaching, I have a big announcement uh, that I want to make, and I want to invite you all to an amazing moment coming up on Wednesday evening, the 7th of October, from 8 to 9 p.m. Now, if you're a Christ follower, uh, it's so important that you find some kind of community in a, in a life group, and we want to encourage that. And it's important that every life group finds an expression in a local congregation, which hopefully many of you are experiencing. But it's also important that local congregations are part of a gospel movement. And uh, one of the great joys of our lives is for Common Ground to be a vital part of a gospel movement called Advance. And uh, we're a family of churches that are gathering on the 7th to pray. What a wonderful opportunity, no matter how mature or young you are in your faith, to be part of something bigger than just a life group or a congregation. So let's not miss out on that evening. We're going to hear stories from across Southern Africa from churches uh, that we're partnering with, and we're going to get to pray for the nitty-gritties on the ground in this southern part of our continent. So please don't miss that. Now, before I get to my preach, we're going to watch a short video clip that covers the passage that I'll be speaking to you on today. Listen up.
1: The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, "'Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid.' Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed.
0: What an amazing window into the life of Jesus. Mark is doing something wonderful here. He's picking up the pace in terms of peeling back uh, a deeper understanding of who Jesus really is. And that's what he's doing in the whole gospel. He's introducing us to ever-increasing layers of the identity of Jesus. The other thing that he's doing is uh, running through this particular passage that we're working with today, is, uh, is, is introducing themes of what Christ is doing. We see in this passage that uh, he is moved with compassion towards his disciples and friends. uh, uh, And he sees them as sheep having no shepherd. That's a crisis for that first century world and for our world in which we live. He's also moved to action in the way that he feeds his followers and friends. And the other theme you see developing in this, in this wonderful uh, uh, passage is his movement building by forming his followers for future exploits in really unusual ways. Something really strategic is in play. And I hope that whets your appetite. In verse 34 of the passage, Jesus sees us as sheep and he sees himself as shepherds. Uh, we read this when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. We're going to interrogate this passage. We're going to ask all kinds of, of questions as we go through uh, a large part of this chapter. The first question we want to ask of the text is what does it tell us about ourselves that Jesus sees us as sheep? In the other Gospels, in Luke 15 and in John 10, it's very clear that we're identified as sheep. The big thing about sheep is they're not really that self-sufficient. As a matter of fact, they're utterly dependent on a shepherd. And this reminds us about the amount of foolishness, foolishness that possibly resides in our hearts, along with selfishness and pride, maybe even huge amounts of spiritual dullness and denial. Friends, sheep are helpless. And isn't it amazing that that's why Jesus is moved with compassion? Another question is, what does it tell us about him, Jesus? Jesus. Uh, where he sees himself as the shepherd. It shows the blend of his tenderness and toughness. He's there to protect the sheep. He's there to, to, uh, to care for them. He sees them, yes, as perhaps helpless and silly creatures, but he offers them comprehensive care. Let's look at this Old Testament description. From Isaiah chapter 40, that describes the shepherd. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. I love that depiction. A God who has arms of power, but he carries the lambs that he loves. In a quote from Tim Keller, which is a paraphrase of another quote, in short, the sheep shepherd image shows us that we're more spiritually stupid than we ever dared think. We're sheep. But we're more valued and loved by God than we ever dared hope. He is a good shepherd. Let's read some of that text a little bit from verse 30 to 34 again. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away with me or come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The heart of a shepherd. We see him. He's moved with compassion. It's a deep compassion. And the word for compassion there is it really means from the depths of his being. His heart goes out. It can be touched. He's not detached in any way. People felt intimate connection. And secondly, Jesus doesn't just have compassion. He has compassionate patience and compassionate sense of responsibility for the problems and needs of the sheep. I mean, his own disciples uh, had, had left with him to go to another part, to the other, to the other side to, of the lake. And uh, the crowds all outran them and arrived there before they got there. But uh, with Jesus, there was no irritation. He doesn't send them away. He's not like his own disciples who see that getting rid of the, or want to get rid of the need by getting rid of the needing, needy. In terms of Jesus, the second thing we see is that his actions and hands uh, are those of a compassionate shepherd. Yes, he's moved with compassion, but he's also moved to action. And we see this in remarkable ways. Just uh, notice this. He keeps a balance uh, in play for his disciples. There's a balance between their individual and community lives. Yes, he had sent them out, as we read, on a missionary trip. Uh, They've come back with all these stories of how uh, God had used them to preach the good news of the kingdom. But as soon as they come back, he gathers them for debriefing. Jesus keeps the sheep together in community. A good question to ask in this time as we're exiting lockdown, as our opportunities to gather Uh, are, are more real in the current season. Are you gearing up for gathering? Are you getting that rhythm of, yes, he's interested in us as individuals, but he's also very committed to us as groups. And that's exactly what we see in play here. Secondly, he keeps the balance in their lives between the spiritual and the physical. He provides, as it were, an opportunity for a retreat. Come apart and let's rest. That's a retreat. But then he also... Uh, feeds them in the multiplying of the fishes and the, and the loaves. Thirdly, he keeps a balance in their lives between rest and work. These disciples who've been called apostles have uh, seen a lot of energy expended toward uh, the multitudes on their missionary journey. And now Jesus directs them to rest. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. This shepherd king commands us to pray, to rest, and to spiritually restore. Louise wonderfully reminded us of that mandate in our lives. You see, Jesus is not out to exploit the sheep. The workers in his kingdom are as important as the work. And don't you just love how in Psalm 23, uh, Uh, He makes them lie down in green pastures. So it's not just move to action. There's a little bit of a movement building thing. Jesus wants the message of the kingdom to be multiplied, but he wants it to come from an easy yoke and a light burden. And fourthly, he keeps a balance in their lives of truth and love. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is moved by their spiritual helplessness and dullness. What's the next word that comes up in the text? What does he do? So he began teaching them many things. Isn't it interesting? These guys, their number one need is not for a multiplication miracle. Their number one need is to hear the teachings of Christ. And I would put it to you today in our culture, the number one need is that we would hear what Jesus has to say uh, about what is really true in our times. You see, the shepherd love of Jesus, he understands that there's nothing more critical than us, you and I, understanding the truth about God, ourselves, and who Christ is. We also see that Jesus is making a divine claim here, and here's another layer being peeled back. You see that crowd that are gathered to Christ in this in this story is uh, is representative of Israel, Israel who's gone astray, and so he begins teaching them. This nation of Israel, this uh rebellious nation, is being gathered to the shepherd, and who is the shepherd it's the shepherd of Psalm 23. It's the, it's the shepherd uh, represented by Jesus himself who stepped into history to, to come and express this love and this care. Moving along, as we heard in the video, we see in verses 35 to 37 what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples in these, in these verses. It's a little bit of movement building here. He wants us to understand that without him, We can do nothing. And as this miracle starts to uh, 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 be experienced, notice that Jesus at first seems really unreasonable. The disciples uh, bring a rational proposal to Jesus. Let's send the people away, seemingly, so that they can buy food. Instead, Instead, he insists that these disciples feed them. Of course, they're just totally exposed And that's Jesus' point. They become immediately aware of their limits. The second thing we see is that uh, in his hands, in Christ's hands, uh, inadequate resources, our little, can be multiplied into much. The insignificant becomes significant. The insufficient becomes sufficient. And a messianic feast is spread before him. It reminds me of Ephesians 3. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Then we see also that Jesus is willing to meet human needs through human partners. He multiplies the loaves that they've sourced, and he does not have to use the bread that they bring, but he does. And he could easily have created all these freshly baked loaves of bread, but he doesn't. Why? He wants to show that through the inadequacy of their resources, his adequacy, his power, his sufficiency comes bursting through as expressions of love and grace. And finally, in this part of the talk, or miracle. We see the importance of prayer in this shepherd's life. And Jesus is an example to all of us, isn't he? Before he multiplies the loaves and the fishes, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. He's looking up to heaven. I want to ask you, what are you doing in these uh, difficult days in which we live? Are you looking in to get depressed, or you're looking out to get distressed, or will you look to him and be at rest? He is our wonderful shepherd. What does the feeding of the 5,000 teach us about Jesus, the nature of his personhood and his work? Now, here's something that's really interesting. Uh, I've only noticed this uh, recently that the feeding of the 5,000 isn't a rescue of any kind in reality. There's not hunger, uh, there's not a famine in the land and there's no uh, cry from the multitudes of hunger. Food was available in a short distance to neighboring towns and villages. And perhaps those who gathered and had the loaves and the fish, they didn't even know that they had experienced a miracle. And that primarily, this was about the disciples experiencing the supernatural power of God. You see, this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. And the only conclusion we can make from that is that this is a crucial teaching miracle. Jesus is revealing himself in a really, really powerful way. And even in, the spi- in spite of that, the disciples are still sluggish. And in verse, uh, uh, in, in verse 45 to 52, they don't get it. And later in another miracle, in the feeding of the 4,000, in the same book by Mark, they still don't get it. Their hearts are hardened. So what are the main teaching points that we can extract from this? Is that Jesus finds people in a remote place. Mark uses the Greek word for desert three times. Why did Mark push the idea of this desolate place? Because he's picking up on the Septuagint version of the wilderness in the Old Testament. And he's evoking the memory of Moses leading and feeding Old Testament sheep in the wilderness. Even the fact that Jesus sits them down in 50s and 100s alludes to Moses' organizational model in Exodus 18. What's the point? Well, deep in the memories of Israel is this picture of the bread of heaven coming down, the manna, God feeding them. Well, in the same way, God, the shepherd of Israel, is among them and he is feeding them bread from heaven. Except it's not manna. This is the true bread who is at the same time the true shepherd And he is feeding them. Ultimately, the shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. And no one else can do that because he lived the perfect life. Died the perfect death that every wayward sheep deserved to die. The second thing we see in terms of the teachings flowing out of this is we see that uh, this feeding miracle is a sign of the kingdom. It wasn't primarily a naked display or proof of his power. You see right through the gospels, Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead, feeds the hungry. And he shows whilst he does that, that he's no more satisfied with the condition of this world than we are. You see, Jesus' miracles look back to the world God originally created. They look back to when no one was hungry. No one was blind. No one was sick. No one experienced brain tumors. No one experienced the premature loss of a loved one. No one was sick. Everyone lived in perfect harmony with each other and with nature. But friends, the miracles don't only look back, they also look forward, these signs of the kingdom, to a new heavens and a new earth. Miracles are not suspensions of natural order, but they are the restoration of the original natural order. Listen to Jürgen Moltmann. Jesus' healings are the only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, And wounded, I love the fact that the signs of the kingdom are pointing to a certain beautiful, glorious end to the suffering we all long for. Now in this final lake and we'll, uh, in the final miracle where Jesus walks on the water, uh, what a beautiful scene in in the video and uh, and 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 the text, as we listen to that that passage, uh, we see something that that needs to get our attention. Jesus has gone up to a mountain to pray, and he notices his disciples uh, struggling out on the, on on the lake, on the sea. Uh, but there's no cry for help. There, yeah, it's a normal storm. This is not primarily a. Uh, uh, a miracle designed to rescue His disciples out of dire trouble. You see, most miracles are rescues from demons, hunger, sicknesses, and storms. But I want to put it to you that this miracle is a sign of enormous power, not for their rescue from, from uh, difficulty out on the sea, but this rescue was aimed at rescuing them from their ignorance. You say, Rigby, how do you see that? Well, follow with me. We read in verse 48 to 49 that Jesus was about to pass them by. This is a remarkable phrase, pass them by. And the grammar in the text indicates that this was the significant thing Jesus was doing. He was going to pass by. And then he says immediately, don't be afraid, for I am, is what the literal Greek language says. And these are echoes of Moses' encounter with the living God. When he was up on the mountain and he wanted to see God's face, God says, no man can see me and live But I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. Moses had a revelation of Yahweh, the one who passed by. And these future apostolic pioneers were about to move into the book of Acts. This movement that was being built needed people. Had a revelation of who it is that they were serving. And now Christ comes to them as the one who's passing by. This is none other than God. This is no cosmic fairy tiptoeing through the tulips. This is God. And then he says, don't be afraid for I am. That's the same name that God identifies himself with when Moses encounters him at the burning bush. He says, I am. Thus by saying, I am, and thus by saying, by passing by, the layers are being more fully pulled back from Christ's identity. He shows that He is not just a shepherd, He is a shepherd king, He is a shepherd creator, and whose actions are now positively Godlike. But notice He applies it to them. He says, I want you to know the one who passes by, the one who is I am, this is the one who's saying to you, do not be afraid, take courage. Folk, I hope you can hear Christ coming out of this passage to you and to your life and your circumstances. He's saying, you are not in the hands of clumsy human beings and circumstances. You are not a cook bobbing in an ocean of insecurity. You are mine. If you're a follower of Christ, He is your God. And folk, the key question is, if this is true, what difference should it make to the disciples? What difference should it make to you and I? I love this passage in Psalm 77. Uh, With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters you, you saw and writhed, the very depths were convulsed. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the sky. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Through your, though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see the, ex, the echoes of Exodus. You see the, the manna coming down. Here's the bread being multiplied. You see Moses going up onto a mountain to encounter God. You see... Moses leading the people of Israel through the, through the Red Sea as, as, uh, as God opens it up. And now Jesus comes and gives us a first century incarnational expression of that. Jesus treads the waves as we see in, jo- in Job chapter nine. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. God led Israel out through The sea, that's what Mark is peeling back. We're getting to see who Jesus really is. And now as we come into land, what's the common fault line that prevented the disciples from understanding the meaning of these two miracles? And how can you and I avoid that? Well, let's nail it. Call it what it is. The disciples' terror uh, when they saw Jesus. They weren't terrified by the storm. But when they saw Christ walking across them, when they saw the creator of that ocean walking, they were terrified. What was the issue? It was their failure to apply to their lives what they should have known by now. I wonder if we have that echoed in our experience. We know so much, but we should so, know so more in the depths of our being. Jesus is both king and shepherd and more. The disciples hadn't realized in the fullest sense who he is. And that's why it says they didn't understand about the loaves. It wasn't about the loaves and the fish. It was about who was multiplying it. This was just not, it wasn't just a miracle of provision. It was a teaching miracle designed to show us who he is. Faith simply for you and I in the 21st century is reminding ourselves today of who Christ is. And acting on it in every situation. And what's the best way to apply these two miracles to our lives? Simply this, cast all your cares upon him. For he cares for you. Since he's a shepherd, he cares. But since he's God and he's an omnipotent shepherd, he cannot fail to be successful in these endeavors. And we can give ourselves permission to refuse anxiety and we can continue to apply his glorious identity to our lives. We can refuse a domesticated or tame version of Jesus. That's what Mark is bringing to us. And my deepest prayer, my deepest hope is that if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you'll refuse uh, just the shallow commentary that we're so often exposed to And you'll go on a journey, as I've mentioned, to really find out who he is. You see, I'm asking you, who do you think Jesus is? But Jesus, two chapters later in Mark's gospel, also makes it a really important thing. He asks his own followers, who do men say that I am? And it was Simon Peter who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's the point at which our knees bow and our lives are transformed and our futures are changed forever. Let's come before him in prayer uh, and invite him to meet with us as we go from prayer into communion. So join me as uh, we come before the Lord. God, I thank you for the enormous privilege of uh, being able to preach this message. And I pray that beyond my human clumsiness, something of glimpses of the glory of God would break out over our lives, over our understanding. I want to pray that you would arrest our dullness, our spiritual drift, and stun us again with the wonder and the beauty of who Christ is. I want to give you permission, I want to invite you by the power of your spirit to come and arrest the hardness in our hearts, the result of being too casual around our pursuit of Christ. To open our eyes to see him as he really is. And like those early disciples who on the road to Emmaus met Jesus and you Broke bread with them and their eyes were opened. I pray as we break bread together in groups across the city, in venues, as we do it wisely because of the current threats of coronavirus, as we do this, ask that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully present and that we would encounter you and that all our fears would drift away, that you would assure us of the power of your redemption through your shed blood to forgive us our sins, through your work on the cross, your broken body to heal us and to build a whole new creation, all this for your glory, for your honor, amen.